it is a joy to be with you. Um, as Angelo mentioned, uh, we've had a long history, and uh, Angelo's a very, very dear brother to me, and uh, I'm thankful for you to be here. Um, thankful, by the way, I should mention, uh, thank you for praying for me. I know that uh, you were praying for me uh, as I was in the hospital in November and having emergency surgery and all that kind of stuff, and God's been gracious. He's been very, very kind and, and allowed me to, um, to, to heal up, and so... Um, so thank you for praying. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, when, when saints are praying for you, um, how that is encouraging and how that just, in, in many ways, becomes uh, God used it to strengthen you, you know, and, and so, um, so thank you very much for praying. And know that Grace Bible Church prays for you. Uh, we are praying for you. We have a Friday morning men's prayer group that meets um, at 6.30 in the morning. They, they pray, and we pray for Redeemer. Uh, we pray for my dear brother Angelo. We pray for the work here. We pray for you guys. Um, we have a, uh, a quarterly all-church prayer on a Saturday morning. You guys are on that list of us, for us to pray for. So we do pray for you. We love you very, very dear. You're very dear to us. Um, most of you probably don't know this. I was born in Coronado, so I'm a San Diego boy. Um, and so I love this area. I worked down here when I was working for the Capitol, when I was working for the state. Uh, I was overseeing a program down here, so I'm familiar with a lot of the area down here. I love this area, and in fact, it was an area that um, that uh, I, I'd always thought about. Is it, you know, is there there a place to plant a church down there? You know, and so I, I praise God that when I heard that you guys were coming down here, I thought, man, praise the Lord, there it is. There's there's the answer to the prayer. You know, so it's uh, it's very very uh, dear to me this church. So thank you for allowing me to be here. Um, thank you for allowing me to open up God's Word to you. Um, and thank you for all of your love for us, because we certainly love you right back. So, um, why don't you take your Bibles and open up to First Peter chapter four? This was read earlier. I want to read it to you again, but I want to get a little context here, starting in verse one. This is the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can gather on mornings like this as a community of saints to worship and adore our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us now. Holy Spirit, would you come and let us hear a a better sermon than I can preach, God. Hide me behind your word, Lord, and let your word have its way with us that Christ might be exalted. That the thoughts that we think about him would be thoughts that honor you. Thoughts that glorify you. So let us not be caught up in the minutiae of our lives right now, God. But let us be resting and trusting in the hope that is Christ. And so, Lord, be with us now. Help us, God. Give us grace to understand, to hear And Father, to be changed. I pray that each one of us would not walk out of this door the same. Your word has its way. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it reaches down into our very souls, God. So we ask, we plead, God. Let your word have its way with us that we would be changed. And made more like your son. For the glory of your name and Your kingdom we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was thinking about what to say to you this morning, I was, uh, that's all right, I'm all right. (laughs) Duct tape cures everything. (laughs) As I'm thinking about, you know, what, what I need to say to you, I asked Angelo, is there anything he wanted me to preach on? And he just wanted some encouragement um, for you. And I pray that I can do that. And, and one of the things that, knowing the sinfulness of man, and I'm not, by the way, accusing anybody of any particular sin, but just in general, knowing the sinfulness of man, I understand what it, what it means to be a part of a, a church, and you are part of a church plant, and there are inherent struggles with that. One of the greatest struggles that you probably have is that you see, well, we're a church plant. We have pulpits that go up and down real easily, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we we, uh, we, we meet in a building in a room where they have quotes of Buddha, right? Uh, and, and so you start, to, you start to wrestle with that, like, what, what am I doing, right? And, and so you start to question, like, is, is this worth it? You know, what I, what I left, I left comfort to, to come here, and, and, and now I'm starting to feel uncomfortable, Lord. But let me just start by asking a question. Do you think that Christ 
was comfortable in heaven with the Father. And, and obviously, we'd have to say yes, right? When, when we read in, for example, Revelation 4, and we see that the, the angels are there, right, around the throne. And, and they're there at, at God's beck and call. That's pretty comfortable. But Christ said, I, I go to do your will, O God. Right? A body you have prepared for me. I go to do your will. And so, let me just encourage you right off the bat, that in being made uncomfortable, in leaving the comforts of home, you were doing exactly what Christ did. You get to be like Christ. He left the comforts of heaven and essentially did a dumpster dive, right? I mean, imagine, he's in the comfort of heaven and he goes into the world. He enters into the world and, and he takes on human flesh. It's like you're at home and you're in your bed and you're comfortable. Right? And you're just, you, 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 you had this amazing sleep. Right? And your friend calls you up and says, hey, let's go dumpster dive. You don't immediately go, yeah! Amen, let's go do it! That, this is, this is what Christ said, I'm, I'm going to do your will, Father. And so he came to earth, became man, came to earth. And so it is a privilege that you have because you get to model Christ for the world, for a watching world. And oftentimes when you're part of a a smaller church, you can kind of struggle because one of the struggles is you see bigger churches. And you go, how come we're not like them? What's wrong with us? Right? What are we not doing? Or what are we doing that we shouldn't be doing? You start to ask those kinds of questions. You know, Peter was written to people similar to your situation was written to the, what's called the diaspora, right? The dispersed ones. They were dispersed, and they were out into different areas, right? Go back to, in, in First Peter, go back to chapter 1. Take a look. <clears throat> Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According, notice, to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now notice that they have been dispersed. But I want you to notice something. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God sent them out, even though they had no idea. Likely what happened was they saw the persecution that was going on and they, they fled, likely. They didn't realize that this was God's plan. They just thought, we're going. And they went, and now Peter's going, oh, by the way, you're there because God wanted you there. It was by design. You're here because God wants you here by his design. 
according to his foreknowledge. And so Peter writes to this people who have been dispersed, and there's, there's much discouragement. They're suffering. In fact, some of them are probably experiencing some form of persecution as well. Persecution for their faith. And they're going through trials. And some of them aren't yet. But Peter's saying, you're, you're going to. And so, I would imagine that while they're going through all of that, that they're struggling. They're struggling. They're asking the same questions that you're asking. Is it, is it worth it? What are we doing here? Why don't we just go back? And Peter writes to them. And he gives them, he gives them a, a commands. Why do you think he gives them commands? Because, well, probably because they weren't doing it, right? They weren't doing it. But he, he wants them to have a, a, a vision of the bigger picture, the grander picture, right? And, and that's what Scripture does. Scripture does that, doesn't it? It wants us to have a grander vision of what God is doing. And a lot of times we like to get into the, the, the micro part of it, right? We want to get into, this is just my my little area right here, and it's all I'm focused on. But God wants us to have a grander vision for things. And he does that often in Scripture, doesn't he? There's a wonderful picture given in Scripture of a love between a father and his son and how the church plays a part in that. Now, we're going to do a little bit of a biblical theology here. Okay, and so walk with me. And this is all introductory, by the way. We did sit under Steve's preaching, so... Um, so go to Titus 1. Titus chapter 1. And, and watch what Paul says here. He says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now not, notice this. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now back up. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. What did he promise? Eternal life. Before the ages began. Now, literally, that's before time eternal. What's he talking about? He's, he's taking us now into this grand picture, isn't he? He's taking us into eternity past. And he's saying there's a promise made by God in eternity past. And we have to ask a question, who is that promise made to? We'll go to 2 Timothy. Chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There's that term again. It's the same one that was used 
back there in Titus, before the ages began. Now what's going on there? Well, there was a promise made from the Father to the Son. It was a promise of eternal life. Now, did Jesus need eternal life? No, he didn't. So what's the promise? Good question. John 10, don't turn there, 28 to 30 says this. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying that he is the giver of eternal life to the sheep, right, John 10. They will never perish. He's saying, no one will snatch them out of my hand. I'm holding them in my hand. No one will snatch them. But then he says, my father who has given them to me. You see, when the the father promises to the son in eternity past, eternal life, what's he promising? He's promising a redeemed people. And he's saying, son, I'm going to give you this gift, and you're going to hold on to them. And in fact, we're going to hold on to them together. I and the father are one, Jesus says. And no one's going to be able to snatch them out of my hand. That speaks of what? Perseverance, right? Once you're saved, you're always saved, right? But there's this picture of a father giving a gift to the son. And it's eternal life. And and, and we know now that it's a redeemed people. It's believers. And then, of course, in John 6, 37 to 40, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. There it is again. But raise it up on the last day. <clears throat> What's the it? It's the people. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So there it is. There's the explanation. What's he raising up on the last day? So the son holds the redeemed people in his hands. And on the last day, he raises it up. Raises up those redeemed people. Now, go to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Now here it is. When he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, After destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there it is. Gets raised up on the last day. Who is it? It's the redeemed, or I might say the church. And it's the son then raising it up and doing what? Giving it to the father. This is amazing picture that God gives us in his word. And friends, this is the work that we get to be a part of. This is the work that the church gets to be a part of. Now go back to 1 Peter. This is why Peter writes this letter. 
because he sees what's ahead. If we had time, we'd look through 1 Peter and you'd see how many times he mentions the coming of Christ, the, late, the last days, the, the, the coming age. How many times he mentions those things. Why? Because he's, he sees that they're suffering and he says, get your eyes off of yourself and look and see what we have ahead. I'm not a marathon runner. But I've talked to some. I'm a marathon watcher sometimes. Maybe I'm a marathon watcher and sleeper. Maybe that's what is more likely. But when you talk to marathon runners, they say, you know, as, as I'm running, I just, all I have in mind is the finish, the finish, the finish. So I can, I can endure. And once you hit about mile 14, 15, according to these runners, you start to feel it. You start to feel the drag. It's almost like someone's holding your legs and pulling you down into the ground. But you keep going because you, 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 you have the finish line in mind. And I was talking to one guy, and he says, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I, I'm looking for the, the medal. I'm thinking about the medal, thinking about when, when, when I finish and they put that medal on. And he even says, I, I even look to see what medal do they give you when you finish. <laughs> but the thought is, what am I looking ahead toward? Even though I'm, I'm, I'm in mile 13, I'm on mile 14, and I'm feeling it in my legs, and it feels like somebody's just dragging me down, and I want to stop. I stop thinking about that, and I look at the finish, and I say, there it is. Now let's go get it. And I think that's exactly what the Christian life is like. And that's why Peter writes to them. And that's why he says, beginning in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. There it is. The end of all things is at hand. He's saying, look, Christ is coming. He's coming. And, and that idea of end, it, it has the idea of a consummation. In other words, it has the idea of, of a goal that is achieved, right? Something that gets realized. And because it says that consummation of all things, we know that he's speaking of the coming of Christ. So while there's suffering going on in these believers' lives, he says, don't look at what's going on around you. Look ahead. Look ahead. And I love this idea that he says it's at hand. I love that. Because it's, it's really one word in, in the Greek, and it's a word that means to come near, to come near. And it's a word that has the idea of, of, of a, a process consummated with a resulting nearness. So the, the, the process is finished, and the result is, is, is near. It's kind of like when, you're, when your child first learns how to walk. Right, and they they're they're kind of over there. They're five feet away, but they feel like they're miles away, right? And they just kind of like, right, and they they walk to you, and then and then they get to you, and you just grab them, and you hug them. It's finished. You, you you learn how to walk, and now there's a nearness now. That's what Peter's trying to encourage them toward. He's saying, look. Remember that the end is near. And, and when that end happens, you get to be near, face to face, 
but the one who created you. How precious is that? And that's what he wants to remind him of. And so in light of the end of all things being near, and in fact, he says, is at hand. So in light of those things, it, it being right there, right, right there. Peter gives us two exhortations. One is the Christian's duty to himself. And two is a Christian's duty to his church family. And the first thing we see is a Christian's duty to himself. And he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The Christian must have sound thinking. Sound thinking. So the idea is to be of sound judgment. You may have the New American Standard says sound judgment. And, and the thought is that you need to be in your right mind. That's what he's saying there. To be of sound judgment is to be in your right mind. That is to be sane. You're able to think about and evaluate situations and discern through them and maturely and correctly understand them. That's the idea. In Mark 5.15 it says, And they came to Jesus... And observe the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had legion, and they became frightened. The, the, the phrase right mind, same word as sound judgment. Now, why was Peter speaking in this way? Why, why would he say such a thing? Well, I don't think it's too far-fetched for us to understand that in Peter saying that the end of all things is at hand, can stir people up. Right, we've, we've seen that even in our lifetimes. We've seen people get stirred up by the end is near statements, right? Um, there was a book that came out in 1988. It was titled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. Right? And obviously it predicted that the rapture was going to happen. 1988, and it was actually September 11th to 13th. Not sure. 11, 12, 13, one of those three days was going to happen in 1988, right? Of course, didn't happen. I know you're on the edge of your seat wondering if it happened. It didn't happen, right? So guess what? 89 reasons why the rapture is going to happen in 1989. Same author. Came out with a book the following year. 89 reasons why it's happening in 1989, right? And then in, in 94, Another author came out with a book titled, Are You Ready? Because he's predicting that in September of 1994, Christ was going to come. And by the way, that same author has since predicted the rapture two other times, including 2011. Just so you know, he was wrong every time. And the sad thing about this is that there are people who are affected by this type of predicting. I remember reading about a church in, in uh, L.A., when uh, in, in the, the, the 94 prediction, many of the members of the church went out and sold their property, sold their homes, sold their cars, everything they owned, just got rid of all of it. And then guess what? They find out, oh, it, it was wrong. This, this so-called prophecy was wrong. You see, 
we must have sound judgment. And our sound judgment must be based on what the word tells us. That's where our sound judgment comes from. You know, you talk to people and they say, well, I have the spiritual gift of discernment. And you, 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 you watch their lives and you go, if you have the gift of discernment, then why are you doing unbiblical things? Well, I'm discerning through it. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, right? You have a spiritual gift. It's going to be according to the Spirit and according to Christ's grace to you. That's all biblical. And so you're going to be drawn to the Word. And so sound judgment is based on what the Word tells us. Okay, and, and, and don't get that mixed up. It's based on what the Word tells us, not what you tell the Word. Right? A lot of times we like to tell the Word stuff. Right? Here's what you're telling. This is what you're saying. Instead of what, what are you saying, God, through your Word? Go to Acts 26. Look at, uh, look at verse uh, 25. <clears throat> well, look at 24. And, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. He says, I utter words of sober truth. That's what some of your translations say. Why is that? Well, it's because the truth is always attached to a Christian sobriety. The truth is always attached to your sober thinking. If you want to think soberly, you have to bathe in the truth of God's word. That's the idea. You want to know how to stray from sound thinking? Stay out of the word. What happens when you're not in the word? You, 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 you lose your, your reason. Like we like to say, you out your mind. Right? You out your mind. Right? Think about Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him? Remember what he did? He looked at, all, looked at his kingdom. Look at all that I have built. And then God says, <laughs> let's see about that. He turns him into this creature. And I'm, I'm waiting for that movie to come out. That's going to be an amazing movie. But he turns him into this creature, right? And then, and then, it, it says that he, he, when, he, when he came to his right mind, then he acknowledged, God gave me all this stuff. Because this is what sin does to you, brothers and sisters. It makes you crazy. Sin, can I say this, makes you stupid. And I don't mean like a dope stupid, I mean stupid. Right? It makes you stupid. And you know that when you talk to some people who are in their sin. Go, man, what is wrong with you? you? You really think that? Well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Well, let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. Oh, yeah, I guess that's right. Sin can make us crazy. All we have to do is go back to Adam and Eve. 
right? Look at in the garden. Think about this, okay? Just think about this. God creates the garden and says, I'm going to feed you, Adam and Eve, with what's in the garden so you can have all of this stuff here. Except this one tree. I don't, I don't want you having anything to do with this tree. You can't eat from this tree, right? So what happens? Well, I got to have from that tree. Yeah, you know, I have to imagine, right, that if somebody else was there, they'd say to them, well, look at all these other trees you can eat from. But I have to have that from that one, right? Sin makes us crazy. Makes us crazy. You have all these choices you can, you can eat from, and you feel like you have to have just that one, right? Um, there's this, this little uh, comic strip we have hanging in our church office. And there's this older man and this older woman. They're standing next to, they're standing waiting for a bus at a bus stop. And there's a sign, and it says, no axe juggling allowed. And the guy looks over at his wife and says, suddenly I feel like I have to juggle some axes. You know, and that's, that's how we think, right? Sinfulness makes you think crazy. And, and that's why Peter is saying you need to be in your right mind. You've you got to have sound thinking. Because we're in these last days. You need to have sober thinking, sound thinking, sober truth. Again, tied to the truth. And oftentimes we lose that sound judgment when we start to look at other sources. Listen to Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. You see what they're doing? On the one hand, you've got the Almighty God, creator of the universe, who spoke and the universe existed. Who can take down as many men as he wants. In the blink of an eye. On the other hand, you've got the Egyptians, and they've got chariots, and they've got horses. A lot of them, too. Right? And Isaiah says, dude, why are you looking at Egypt? Why are you going to Egypt? Why are you relying on horses and chariots just because there's a, a lot of them? You've got the Holy One of Israel on your side. Why are you looking there when you've got Him? Sin makes you crazy. Like you done lost your mind. Right? Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Right? Christian, we need to have sound thinking. But Peter also says that the Christian must have a sober spirit. A sober spirit. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. The Christian must have a sober spirit. Here's the idea. The idea of having a sober spirit is to be vigilant. It's to be watchful. 
not letting your mind wander into other areas. Some people call it mental intoxication, right? Not letting your mind wander into that. But instead, be, being spiritually alert. Being spiritually alert. There's a, a book that I like to use in, in, in marriage counseling. It's called uh, When Sinners Say I Do. You've probably heard of it. And in there, he talks about the fog of war, right? And he t- he's talking about it in the context of marriage, but there's some truth in what he's talking about. The fog of war. What he means by that is that when soldiers have often talked about being in, involved in war, and when they're in war, and, and, and there's explosions happen all over, there's, there's smoke coming up, there's bullets whizzing around, they just lose their sense of where they are, and they lose all ways of thinking. And, and they just lose their alertness. And they start having lapses in judgment. We have a brother in the church. He's, a, um, he's one of those guys that goes through the airport metal detector, and he sets it off every time because he's got shrapnel in his back from Vietnam. And uh, he, I, ta- I asked him about this. Tell me about this. He goes, oh, he's, oh yeah. He's, I, when we were in Vietnam, we had all that happening to us. And you look at the guy, you go, what are you doing? There's a guy standing, there's bullets whizzing by, there's a guy standing up, just kind of running back and forth, not knowing what he's doing. A lapse in judgment, the fog of war. Stressful times can bring about these lapses in judgment. And, and, And for you in particular, you know, stress can be, the stressful times can be brought on by, by your own thinking, right? I'm like this. I do this a lot. I can think myself into a spiral. I, I think, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. should have done this. Should have done that. And, and you're just going, and you're just going down. And, and the more you think about it, the more depressed you get, you know, it's like, and you just start spiraling down. And, and all of a sudden, you're feeling the weight, all these things going on in your life, stressful times, Right? And that can bring about a lapse in judgment. We need to have a sober spirit. Now, you know, you, you look, at, you consider what's going on today in today's world. And we're, we are, as Christians, in stressful times. No doubt. You know, we're seeing more and more the hatred towards Christianity. How difficult it is to stand up for your faith. And we can have lapses in judgment in that. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to before this election happened. How many people I talk to just to talk them off the ledge because they're worried about, oh, what if you know, so-and-so becomes president? Then what's going to happen? Well, Jesus is still on his throne, right? I don't, I'm not worried. People are, oh, no, what's going to happen? It's like, what are you doing? You're losing your, 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 your sober spirit. You're losing your, your watchfulness, right? Think about when Peter denied Christ. Stressful time, right? Jesus gets arrested. High anxiety time for the disciples, right? And all of a sudden, a servant girl looks at Peter and says, this man was with him too, right? And and this happens three times. He gets pointed out as, as being with Jesus. And three times he denies that he was with Christ. See, Peter knows, this is why he's saying this, because Peter knows 
what it means to not be spiritually alert. He lived it. He lived it. So he knows. There's a passage in in Luke 21. Don't turn there. But 34 to 36 is similar to this. It says, be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those that dwell on the face of all the earth, but keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. See, the Christians that Peter was writing to were experiencing this suffering, persecution. And so they had to be spiritually alert. Then the question is, well, how do we get this spiritual alertness? How do we maintain a spiritual alertness? Well, listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. <laughs> Wait a second. Timothy gets sent into the church at Ephesus. Remember Ephesus, right? If you read Acts, you know what Ephesus was like. They wanted to kill Paul, right? Because people were getting saved. They are getting rid of their idols, and the silversmiths were losing money. So they wanted to kill Paul, right? So Paul goes, okay, Timothy, get in there. Go get him, right? Stressful time for Timothy. And what does Paul tell him to do? Just keep ministering. Just keep serving. I know you're feeling it. I know you're feeling the stress of it. Just keep serving. And quite frankly, Paul would say that to you. You feeling discouraged? Feeling like, man, I What are we doing here? I think Paul would say the same thing to you. (laughs) Fulfill your ministry. Keep serving. Keep at it. And by the way, when when Paul said that to Timothy, but you be sober in all things, the same word used in 1 Peter. But it is interesting that in that text, in, in Timothy, in 2 Timothy, well, let's go there. Go to 2 Timothy so we can see it. 2 Timothy. <clears throat> Chapter 4. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There it is. Right? And that... that uh, Word for sober-minded is the same as in First Peter. But I want you to pay attention to verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, they were not enduring sound doctrine. They turned away from the truth. Our soberness, our sobriety, it's right here in the Word. Our sound judgment comes right here from the Word. 
Don't turn away from it. And praise God, Angelo was up here Sunday by Sunday preaching the word to you, preaching the truth to you. You're going through Philippians and home fellowship group. The truth is being brought to you. Do not turn away from those things. The women, you've got Titus 2s. Keep at it. Don't, don't neglect that. This is the truth being given to you so that you can have sound judgment, so that you can be sober-minded. <clears throat> so given the fact that the end of all things is at hand and we must have sound judgment and a sober spirit, Peter goes on to say, pray. The Christian must have a praying life. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. With this sober thinking, with this spiritual alertness, we are now then called on to commune with God. I love what Wayne Grudem said. He says this, the idea is not simply so that you can pray, but in order to pray more effectively, more appropriately, Christians should be alert to events and evaluate them correctly in order to be able to pray more intelligently. I love that. You see, we need to discern through these, these days. Discern through the times and understand them and then pray intelligently about them. Not in panic. Not fearful. But we can biblically discern them and then pray rightly about them. There's more to say there, but let's move on. The Christian's duty to his church family, Peter says. So you have a duty to yourself, and now he says, now let's talk about your duty to your church family. He says, above all, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He says you need to have the right attitude. You need to have the right attitude. Keep fervent in your love for one another. The word for keep is, is sometimes translated as, as have or hold or possess. And, and, and it's, it's not merely an act. It's an ongoing attitude that we need to have. It's one of love. And, you know, here's where we fail miserably in the church oftentimes. Now, I don't mean Redeemer. I mean just Christians in general. We can say, I love this brother. I love this sister, but it's just words. Biblical love is action. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, love is active in Scripture. A biblical love is active. So stop, please stop telling people you love them and then just leaving them alone completely. If you truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to be involved in their lives. You're going to be involved with them. You know, it doesn't mean you've got to have a five-hour Bible study with them every day. Hey, man, let's go to the store. Or you need any help with, what's, you know, with your, your yard. Looks kind of messy. <laughs> hint, hint. Right? You, you get involved with each other. That's having the right attitude. That's this love, being fervent in love for one another. 
It's, it's that, that love that Christ shows us. And with that same love, we are called to love one another. And, and I love this about these, when we see in Scripture, these one another's. It's, it's, it's what's called a reflexive pronoun. Remember your grammar, right? English grammar. Reflexive pronoun, right? What is that? Well, it's a pronoun that reflects back to the subject, right? So it generally expresses the action of the subject upon itself. In other words, for example, John drove himself to the hospital, right? Himself is the same person as John. In verse 8, when he says, keep loving one another earnestly, or keep fervent in your love for one another, some of your versions might say, the subject of the sentence is you all, right? All y'all, right? And Peter says, love each other, and the each other is seen as the same as all y'all, right? So the emphasis here is the body of Christ. And I would even argue local body of Christ. Because doesn't Peter talk about elders? So he's talking to local bodies here. He's not talking about church universal. He's talking to local church. So we can even take this and say, this is talking to you, Redeemer. And he's saying, keep fervent in your love for one another. That is to say that you love your brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters love you. Reflexive, right? Because he goes on to say that love covers a multitude of sins. And guess what? That's going to happen, isn't it? People are going to offend you. You're going to offend people. By the way, don't think that just because somebody offended you that you never offend anybody. Okay? Just, just, just stop thinking that. You offend people. You do. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. You are part of a church. You're a sinful person. I hope you know that. You are a sinful person. You're going to sin against people. So stop thinking that I got offended and that person offended that person. You're offensive too. Don't think you're not. But guess what? In the midst of the body, in the midst of the local church, love covers. You get offended, let love cover it. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I let love cover that? Just look to Christ. Look at what he did on the cross. Look at him dying for your sin. And look at how awful of a person you were towards him before he saved you. Does that not help you think about how you can let love cover a multitude of sins? Let love cover those things. That's how you keep fervent in your love. That's how you love earnestly, is you let love cover those things. And when, by the way, when it doesn't, when it can't, then you go and talk to that person. You, 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 you reconcile with that person. Because Satan loves those kinds of situations where you think, so-and-so offended me, I'm not talking to her ever again. And then in your head, in your mind, it starts to fester. And all of a sudden, you're making up all kinds of stuff about her in your head and what she intended and what she meant, right? And really, she meant absolutely none of those things to you. She just meant to say hi to you, right? 
But inside, when you see the way she looked at me and the way she's sneering at me, right? That's what Satan loves to do, that kind of stuff. Didn't he say to Eve, did God really say? See what he does? He likes to get you thinking about things in wrong ways. This is why we can say sin makes you stupid. Because you think about things in wrong ways. So you, your duty to each other is to have the right attitude, the attitude of love. But you also have to do the right action. He says, be hospitable to one another. Show hospitality to one another. And by the way, do it without grumbling, he says, because don't you love that? Peter knows. Man, I have to have so-and-so over again. We're going to grumble. Peter says, stop it. Don't do that. Don't grumble. Instead, show your love. Show that you are hospitable. The, the word hospitable, it's made up of two words. One word meaning friend and the other word meaning strange. So now you're, some of you think strange friend, right? But that's, that's not what it means. It, it carries the aspect of being kind to strangers. Right? Welcoming in the stranger. It's the idea that, that we ought to be warm and welcoming even to those in the body that we don't know very well. We ought to be in each other's homes. This is how that love is shown. It's an opportunity to act out that love that you have, the attitude that you have toward one another. So it's not just a right, having a right attitude, but it's also letting that attitude take effect and put it into action. So we need to be hospitable and then not only do we need to do the right action, but we need to serve the right way. Notice what he says. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it, what is it? The gift to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, he's saying employ your spiritual gift. Within the body, employ your spiritual gift. Peter reminds us that each one has received a spiritual gift. Each one has received a spiritual gift. So spiritual gifts are not something that are given to a select few, but every believer has one, right? Some people believe that every that believers have may have more than one. That's okay, we're not going to argue about that right now. But each one has, has a gift from God. That is meant for the good of the body. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. And so employ it. Use it. And you say, well, I can't. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to speak. Or I don't know how to do these things. And no, notice what Peter says. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. God has graced you with this. He has given you a grace. It's a gift. And you say, well, I'm not very good at speaking, although I think I might have the gift of teaching. And God says, then speak the oracles of God. You don't have the right words to say, speak the oracles of God, right? God gives you those words to say. 
Some of you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tired. You get home from work, and I'm, I'm tired, so I don't want to go to home fellowship group. You know what the Bible says? Serve by the strength that God supplies. So you, you, your excuses of, I can't, I can't, I can't, we would say, amen, you can't. But Christ can, and he does. And it's amazing how when you say, I can't, but you still go and you do it anyways, it's amazing how Christ goes, okay, well, watch what I can do. And he uses you in the life of believers. And you step back and go, praise be to God, because that was not me. See, there really is no excuse to not exercise your gift. There really is no excuse. And here's the great conclusion of all this. In order that in everything, what's the everything? Everything. (laughs) How we serve, how we employ our spiritual gift, how we love one another, how we're hospitable toward one another, how we have the right attitude, how we're doing the right action, how we're serving the right way. In all these things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There it is. You see, this grand picture of the Father in eternity past, promising to the Son a redeemed people and sending the Son in to implement the plan to become man, to die for our sins so that we can have forgiveness of our sins through faith in Christ, and then being buried, right? This is, we have Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday coming up. Being buried in, those, in the tomb for those three days and then resurrecting and appearing to hundreds of people. You know, when we start to understand that story, the gospel story. That those truths are real. It's not just some story. It's real. It's history. What Christ has done. We start to believe that and we start to come together as a church. God is glorified and Christ is exalted. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that our supreme desire? And so we lay aside those bothersome issues of how come we're not like that church? Or I'm uncomfortable, Lord, but I was comfortable back there. We let let those things go away because we have the grander vision of God's picture in mind. That as I get to serve, the blessing, I I get to serve here at Redeemer Bible. I I get to invite people to a Sunday service. I get to invite them to a Bible study. And I get to watch God save souls. Then it continues the work that God has called us to so that his glory would shine forth. You see what you're a part of? Christian, you see the blessing that it is to be here. 
Yes, you have a pulpit that goes up and down. No, so what? Yes, you've got a quote from Buddha on the back wall. So what? Christ is proclaimed here. And God is glorified through that. Revel in that. Have great joy in that. And let that truth, let that truth help you to endure. Even through trying times. Even through those little struggles that you have. So that you have that grander vision of God's story. Of the exaltation of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this wonderful reminder. I pray, God, that you would help us, each of us, God, each one here. Help us, God. Some are struggling. Some are just physically tired. Some are mentally worn out. But God, you are the giver of grace and you lavish us with grace. So God, I ask that you would give them that grace so that they can have this right attitude and they can do the right action and they can serve the right way. Because in the end, God, we see your word is so clear that as those things happen, as we understand the end of all things is at hand, and as we understand that, that we need to be sober-minded with sound judgment, and then we fulfill our responsibilities and our duties to one another, as we do those things, God, you Bless us with the opportunity to glorify you. A sinner like me, God. Someone who is as messed up as I am. With the sin that lurks in my own heart. Your word tells me that I can glorify you. Your word tells me that we can exalt your son. And that's all we want, God. That's all we want to do. Strengthen us for that, God. Give us grace to endure toward that, God. We plead with you. In Jesus' name, amen.